Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is Charles Eisenstein. He's a teacher, speaker, and writer focusing on themes of civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution. He's the author of Sacred Economics and Climate, A New Story. In this episode, we talk about expanding our exclusive focus on carbon emissions to see the broader picture beyond our short-sighted and incomplete approach. We talk about why the current war mentality on climate change isn't working, how to create lasting change on an emotional level, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Charles, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. It's good to be on your show. My background, <laughs> it's kind of hard to put it in conventional terms, you know. I, I guess I would say that I'm a writer, and more and more I also identify as a public speaker, which is, it's it's because it's a separate thing from writing books. I've written about, oh, five books or so, and I do a lot of of speaking, and I hold retreats and workshops as well, and I the basic overarching theme of my work is the change, the changeover in the guiding stories or the guiding mythology even that defines civilization and and how that reflects in our systems, in our psychology, and how as our systems and our sense of self break down, how we are catching a glimpse of a new possibility, a new story, and what the self and world might be, might, might look like built on that new story. Very cool. Yeah. So you've noticed changes in the environment, thinking back to your childhood. Can you give me an example of some of these, for example, like the insect Holocaust? It's, it's, it's pretty well known right now, but a few years ago, this research came out from Germany documenting something like an 80% decline in flying insect biomass. And it was a very scientific study that had been going on for over 30 years, very, very careful. And I was like, I knew it. It wasn't my imagination that there's way less bug splatter on the windshield now than there was when I was a kid. You'd have to wash your windshield every time you stopped at a gas station because there'd be all these bugs that splattered on the windshield. And I'm like, what happened to that? And, and yeah, it turns out that this is... Um, a worldwide phenomenon that that people w- like one of the basic patterns or basic stories that guide our and let me know if I'm, I'm if I'm going on too long. No, you're uh, good. But one of the basic storylines is anytime that there's something that disturbs us, we try to find the one cause for it. So flying insect biomass, like less, less insects. Oh, that must be because of one thing. Maybe it's climate change. That must be it. And now we know what to do. So there's a certain relief in identifying the one cause of all of our problems, whether it's global warming or uh, Donald Trump, you know, or Vladimir Putin or, or chemtrails or vaccines or something like this one thing. Mm-hmm. That kind of, yeah, it's in a way, even if you don't know what to do about the one thing, you know, the evil conspiracy of the Illuminati, whatever it is, even if you don't know what to do about it, there's a, a familiarity in identifying a bad guy or identifying something that in theory you could conquer or dominate and then the problem would be solved. But I think that that whole mindset is part of the problem that obscures the complex of causes that aren't just an other doing a bad thing, but that involve ourselves as well. And once we enter that realm, we no longer even in theory know what to do about it. But at least we are able to ask new questions and see things that were invisible in the reductionistic one cause explanation. 
Yeah, you're really yeah. asking in this book for a shift in our mindset and perspective and also just challenging us to ask better questions. You really make the case in this book that the climate change narrative is off and there's a larger picture concerning our disconnection from the environment and that the motivation to change has to come from the heart. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things I talk about in the book is how environmentalism has moved from a uh, love narrative to a fear narrative. It, it, back in the day, it wasn't save the whales because if we don't, bad things are going to happen to us. It was save the whales because they're magnificent and we love them. Mm -hmm. But today it's save the Amazon because if we don't, runaway global warming is going to destroy civilization. I mean, not that that's, you know, not a valid fear, um, but it's a very different appeal than appealing to people's innate love of life and appreciation for beauty. And even I would take it so far as the sacredness of these primal forests. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. I want to go back to something you said about the way that we used to approach the the problem with with whales. We thought, you know, it isn't just what it's going to do to our whatever our incentives are, just for the simple fact that whales are beautiful, or when we see deforestation, that we can just appreciate the fact that what it's doing to the trees and everything that inhabits the forest. I mean, this is so important. You know, having people to reconnect on an emotional level, that's the internal motivation that it's going to take to make real lasting change. You know, we, we look at the ecocidal direction of the world right now, and it looks an awful lot like the culprit is this, um, the greed of people, the consumerism, the materialism, like the diagnosis is that there's something wrong with people. And I like to look a level deeper and to say, where does this greed come from? Where does consumerism come from? Where does materialism come from? What need is it seeking to meet that is unmet today that allows us to see people as beautiful, noble beings and not as these degenerate plague, plagues upon the earth? And, and so where I go to is the lost connections um, to nature and to community that are more than a matter of it's not just like hiking in the woods, you know, and loving nature or something like that, or, or seeing how beautiful it is. Like that is definitely a step in the right direction. But I think that the, the missing, um, what's missing and what drives the endless addiction to substitutes for the real need, you know, what the real need is, is for genuine participation. It's not just um, to uh, have you know, nature outside your door, but it's to participate meaningfully in the cycle of life around you. Mm -hmm. And that takes on, so it might mean being more material in the sense of, of not just purchasing everything, but doing some things with the soil, you know, with the plants and animals around you. Uh, it also takes on, I'm not sure how much you go into um, diet and stuff in, in your journey, but, but, you know, it could be something as concrete as taking more life into our bodies, participating in life more through, through um, body ecology. Mm -hmm. um, all of these are part of the same movement toward reconnection and re-embedding ourselves in a web of connection so that our relationships to humans and to life in general are richer and we're no longer alone. Because I think it's the, the lonely individual self, the, the neoliberal subject, the discrete unit of modernity that is so desperate to recover the lost connections, which is really the lost being, because we are our relationships that um, is endlessly hungry for, you know, it's that cut off alone, solitary being that's endlessly hungry to dominate, to consume, um, to own, um, to conquer. Yeah, we're, we're more connected than ever with each other through the internet and technology, but we've never been more isolated. And I like what you said about participating in life, but in order to 
help people become better participants, we have to understand where they are coming from to begin with. And a question that you asked that I like is, what is it like to be you? Mm -hmm. uh, it's the antidote to judgment. And that's really important today because if you look at the political situation, for example, but also, you know, many in many communities and in many relationships and families, we have um, a situation of intensifying polarization, intensifying dehumanization of the other side, uh, and 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 judgment. You know, which basically says that if I were you, I wouldn't be doing the things that you're doing. I wouldn't be so stupid. I wouldn't be so close-minded. I wouldn't be so greedy. I wouldn't be so evil. And so basically, judgment presents us a certain diagnosis of why the people that we judge are doing bad things. And the diagnosis is basically because they are bad people. And if we are, and, and applied politically, you know, it leads to war thinking. Um, the terrorists, why are they doing that? Well, it's because they're terrorists they hate our freedoms they're bad this is, is the way of thinking that the movies encourage all the time where in most movies the problem is caused by an inexplicably and irredeemably bad person a bad villain a thanos you know in the in the avengers like there's a bad guy out there yeah. and the solution is to kill the bad guy and so this translates into politics it translates into our personal lives um, in a more dilute fashion. The problem, or one problem with it, is that if we are stuck on that lens and habituated to that way of diagnosing the problem, then we will never ask, why are you doing this thing? Why are you, why do you engage in such greedy behavior? Why are you closed-minded? Um, what is it about your circumstances that might, that might, if I were in your circumstances, maybe I would be doing the same thing. That question, what is it like to be you, which really means what is the totality of your internal and external circumstances that makes what you're doing almost inevitable, that question opens up all kinds of possibilities to change the situation. This is basically reframing, shifting away from this, like you said, the war or combat mentality into a coming from a place of love and understanding. Right. right. So, for example, if you're looking at crime from the us versus them, good versus evil mentality, the solution to crime is to lock up, punish and deter the criminals. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of what is it like to be you, we ask what is the breeding ground of crime? What are the conditions that breed crime? And we might see things that we would not otherwise see. We might see uh, inner cities where the only male role models and only economic opportunities are in the drug trade. We might see conditions of poverty that um, give people almost no alternative. We might see uh, generational trauma that that uh, damages people so much that they um, harbor this uncontrollable rage. You know, we might see a lot of things um, that that are invisible from the perspective of criminals are bad people and we have to lock them up, punish them and deter them. When you are trying to help someone, you know, achieve a better state of health and they seem to fall, keep falling off the wagon, it's easy mm -hmm. from an outsider to look at them and think, you don't have the will enough willpower, you need to try harder. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me, before I go into that, let me just say another thing about, about health and how this approach uh, translates into uh, conventional medicine and a lot of people's thinking about health. This find the enemy approach, like one, on one level, it's applied to say, bacteria and viruses or other pathogens, like the, just like we want to explain crime as a function of these bad criminals, well, if you get sick, that must also be a bad thing that has invaded you, and the solution is to conquer and destroy that bad thing. So let's kill 
the bacteria kill the viruses, um, dominate and regulate hormone levels because you have some bad organ that's putting out too much of this and not enough of that, uh, or cut out the offending body part. It's all about control. Mm -hmm. It's the same paradigm that is exercised on crime, on terrorism, on in agriculture, the suppression of weeds, the killing of the insects, right? The, the, to find the enemy, then we know what to do. It's a comfortable mindset. Whereas <clears throat> what is it like to be you? Um, the mindset, or you can call it systems thinking, holistic thinking, it might, and this is probably super familiar ground for you, but just, you know, just to say it again, um, we might say, oh, okay, we have um, an outbreak of streptococcus bacteria, you know, and we say, well, what are the conditions that allow that to happen? Um, how, what are they a symptom of? Just as an outbreak of weeds could be a symptom that of, of um, some deficiency in the soil that the weeds that we call the weeds are actually there to remedy. Uh, we could look at, and I think this is actually true with uh, flu and a lot of colds, that there's a body condition that invites them in and they're maybe even offering a service to the body. So it's, a, it's and whether or not that's true, like to even think of that, to even have a chance of seeing that, you already have to get out of the us versus them, good versus evil mm -hmm. mentality, war mentality. And so now to answer your question, I'll apply that to the level of our, like the same thinking can be applied to our own bad habits. So the cause of disease, okay, maybe it's not the bacteria, maybe it's your diet. And why do you have a bad diet? Well, there's a bad thing in you. It's your, your weakness, your laziness, your self-indulgence, your lack of willpower, et cetera, et cetera. That's the same mentality rather than saying, um, what is the unmet need in you or what are the circumstances that have you eating things that you know are bad for you? Is it just because you're weak? I mean, try saying that to an addict. Oh, you're just too weak. You're going to have to try harder to stop drinking. That is never useful advice or almost never useful. Why do we think that that's useful for someone who's addicted to sugar um, or, or, you know, junk food or overeating? Um, or, or it could be just on the level of belief systems, you know, why is somebody so attached to trusting medical authorities? Mm -hmm. what, what, and why are you not attached to that? What have you received in your life that allowed you to think independently that other people may not have received? What are the conditions that gave birth to your questioning mind that maybe other people didn't have. I mean, there's a certain safety in trusting the authorities. There's, there's a, it's a familiar world that tells you how things are, what's real, what the world means, and, and who you are in relation to that. And so how do we, so this is, these are the kind of questions I come to. Um, how do we uh, ease people into a new story? Because this is what it's about. It's, it's, the old story is an aspect of the story of separation, domination, control. And it's not just in diet and health. Uh, it's, it's part of a whole world story. And, and what are the conditions for that to change? And, the, and that's, I'm not going to try to answer that right now, but mm -hmm. I just want to put that out there as the right question because it invites inquiry, self-inquiry. Like what honestly, honestly, is it because you're just made of better stuff that you have um, uh, been able to learn, um, you know, about paleo diets and things like that? Or was there something that was gifted to you, an experience or a set of experiences or a role model that was gifted to you or a crisis in your life that unraveled your trust in the old story. Like what actually happened? This is, it's just about, about revealing what's true. And once what's, and that happens um, through observation and self-inquiry. Once we have, once what's true has been revealed, then we can become really powerful in helping others 
discover the same truths. Yeah, this is root cause recognition followed by root cause resolution. Mm -hmm. And drawing back to that metaphor of being addicted to sugar, it's the same goes for being addicted to the use of fossil fuels. And you're asking people to do introspection and the internal work, but the internal work is hard. So hard that a lot of people won't even pick up this book because they know it's going to force them to reflect. Yeah. Um, so then the question becomes, what happens in your life that bring you that brings you to do something that is hard? Because we don't want to write people off and say, well, if it's hard, they're not going to do it because they're lazier than I am. <laughs> you know, we want to like really look at that. Like, like, I mean, there's a lot of things that are hard that I don't bother to doing because they're too hard. But sometimes I do something hard. What kind of conditions give birth to courage? That might be a question. Or give birth to determination, to, to will. Again, I'm not going to answer that, but I want to put that there as it's like a really compassionate question. Otherwise, it feeds into um, a kind of elitism, you know, or, or a superiority that isn't the truth. That's a great question. So we, we have to understand our own incentives and hidden motives. Yes. When we understand our own incentives and hidden motives, then we become more powerful agents of change. It's because we will then better recognize the conditions that govern people's behavior and be able to address those conditions. And I know a lot of people will think, well, I'm just one person, you know, how much impact can I have? And I think, I think that's the wrong place to, to look. I think large scale healing starts with individual spiritual healing. Yeah. Um, there's different ways to look at that. I mean, certainly if there's a lot of individual spiritual, emotional, physical healing, eventually it adds up to collective healing. Uh, a sick society depends on sick individuals to maintain it. And then it creates more sick individuals. So it's a holding pattern. And there's also another more mysterious dimension to it of morphic resonance, to use Rupert Sheldrake's term, that I'm not sure maybe some of your listeners are familiar with it, but basically just saying that, that any change that happens anywhere strengthens the field of that change so that it happens more easily everywhere else. Even if there's no identifiable direct causal link, for, you know, I might have some kind of emotional breakthrough or, um, and, and I might tell everybody about it and that inspires them to have a similar breakthrough. That, it could happen that way but it could also be something completely invisible. It could be somebody um, coming to forgiveness on their deathbed. Yet, if you're, and if you're present to that, you'll recognize that something momentous has just happened, not just for that person, but for the world. And that maybe is because that moment of forgiveness adds its weight to the field of forgiveness happening all over the globe. Like these are important moments. Everything that we do on the personal level has global significance. It's a kind of, it's an intuition that we have that conflicts with what I call the old story, the story of the separate self. But from a new story, which is actually an ancient story, the story of interconnection, interdependency, interbeing, uh, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's word for it, the, the, from, from that story, of course, I'm connected to everything. Everything is a mirror of, everything is mirrored in me. Everything that happens in the world happens to me. Everything I do affects everything. Like from that understanding of a connected self, then of course, anything that happens in the personal realm is significant. Mm -hmm. It's a different way of thinking. Yeah, I like that interconnectedness. We're one big network. We need to look at every, this whole thing as oneness or a form of oneness, mm -hmm. like like the gut biome. Whereas it, the more people that create a dysbiosis, and then instead of trying to throw antibiotics at it, which would just create more dysbiosis in an unhealthy environment, we need to get to the root cause of that and figure out how we can create a healthier totality network. Right. And, and yeah, the... um. 
microbiome and body ecology, that is an example of the emergence of the story of interbeing in our society, where we understand the self as a collective. Like these, these, you know, in the old days, any bacteria in your body, you know, like that's a separate self and we're in competition with each other. So we would want to cleanse ourselves of all other life forms that it's just us. That would have, like, so the importance of gut bacteria was totally unrecognized, you know, until a few decades ago. Uh, now the, the recognition is, is growing and growing and growing. We understand that a healthy self includes others. You cannot be healthy as a separate self. So one aspect of that is, yeah, you cannot be healthy without, you know, 10 times more bacteria than you have of your own cells, mm -hmm. not to mention all kinds of yeasts and, and other microorganisms all over your body. And you cannot be healthy outside of community. You cannot be healthy disconnected from nature. And, and in fact, healing is a matter of recovering our lost interconnections. I've heard you touch on the organs of Gaia mm -hmm. over the forests and wetlands and all the ecosystems signifying an interconnection of all living beings. So what right. is the root of that separation and how do we restore the sense of connection with the cosmos? Yeah, the organs of Gaia, right. It's not just our bodies that are like that. It's the whole planet. The whole planet is a living organism. Um, and so, yeah, you're referring to one of the main themes of my climate book, which is basically we will not resolve this crisis by just cutting carbon emissions, sequestering carbon, you know, geoengineering the earth. Um, in fact, we could cut carbon emissions to zero overnight but if we continue to destroy the soil, the water, the wetlands, the forests, the whales, the fish, the insects, et cetera, et cetera, then the planet still dies of organ failure. So part of the planetary healing is to accept that the planet is alive, that the planet is a being, that we ourselves are one of the organs of that being. Um, I feel like there was another thing you were asking though, and, and I kind of lost track of it. I think the example that I was thinking of in my mind was in the hidden life of trees yeah, and their root system and yeah. how they can go about just, just being trees and living in accordance with their own nature and how everything seems to work in symbiosis mm -hmm. and by doing so. But there's a separation that we've created in human nature in the way that we live and we've become destructive. Yeah, it, it's inevitable that we will become destructive when we don't see nature as part of ourselves, when we see it as an other and therefore as valuable only in its use to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of environmental rhetoric actually buys into that story with headlines like, you know, scientists have valued the ecosystem services of the Atlantic uh, fisheries at whatever, you know, $100 billion. Um, that's basically saying that it's affirming that its value can be measured economically and that that is the right way to measure its value. But that is, you would never do that to a human being. You would never say, yeah, you're worth you know, $3 million to society. Therefore, implicitly, if, if it costs more than $3 million to keep you alive, or if um, I could make $3 million by killing you, you know, and, and like, then I should do it. Um, if, if you value a forest at a billion dollars, then if you could make $2 billion by cutting it down, uh, selling the lumber and paving over the land and building strip malls, then by the same logic of it's worth a billion dollars, then you should do it. That's the, the danger that happens when we reduce nature and reduce life to something less than sacred, something less than infinitely precious. We talk about the ability of trees to sequester carbon and we use this argument to protect forests, but you say 
The danger here is that when we gauge forest health or instrumentalized forests based on carbon, then right. anything that doesn't have an obvious carbon impact gets left out of the equation. Right. I mean, it's definitely an improvement to go from valuing them for how much money they can make to valuing them for how much carbon they can sequester. Um, that is a step maybe in the right direction, but it's still a reductionism. It's still reductionistic. It's still, and it still misses so much of what forests do for the planet. This, um, one of the expressions of the reductionistic tendency is to equate ecological health with one number, which is carbon, carbon dioxide levels or greenhouse gas levels, uh, emissions and sequestration. It's a number. And to reduce it, to reduce biodiversity, to reduce the physiology of a living being called Gaia to a number, it's going to leave stuff out. It's going to leave out, like, what's the carbon contribution of salmon? Mm -hmm. do, they, do they sequester carbon? Well, in fact, I talked to an ecologist uh, about this just recently. He was describing how salmon transport nitrogen um, and other nutrients inland when they're not blocked by dams and stuff. They, they swim hundreds of miles inland and then they are eaten by bears and, and eagles and other predators who then um, through their feces and urine distribute that nitrogen and other minerals, uh, nitrogen and, and, and minerals um, into the forest which then becomes a key nutrient for tree growth um, and contributes to healthy forests, which are then more resistant to disease and to fire, mm -hmm. and therefore um, are able to store and sequester more carbon. So like you could try to preserve your, their valuable because of carbon argument, but realistically, how are you ever going to measure that? And, and, and what that um, chain of, oh, it's not even that simple. Like the bears who eat the, like, so you need bears too, to transport the uh, salmon's nutrients away from the streams into the woods. And one guy even told me, yeah, and it actually ideally is black bears and grizzly bears because the black bears are really good fishers, um, but the grizzly bears will take their fish. So, so the black bears get a fish and they race as fast as they can into the woods to eat it. So they spread the, the nutrients even farther. And when you see like these kinds of complexity, and it's not just salmon and bears, like there's so many amazing examples of nutrient transport how that, that um, are crucial for, main, for keeping the earth alive. You know, it's not... To reduce that to carbon just misses the whole picture, you know, and, and enables you to justify all kinds of ecologically damaging things because, well, you know, we're going to offset the carbon with, by putting a field of solar panels where we cut the forest down, you know, and, um, or we're going to buy carbon offsets from somewhere else. Like it, any kind of reductionism will end up with the reduction of life to death it's all to drive human progress instead of like planetary progress as a whole. We're seeing, yeah, through reductionism, we see the world for less than it really is. Mm -hmm. And when we see something as less, we tend to make it less. The story that we hold invites reality into conformity with the story. For, for a lot of us, we, when we think global warming, most of us think carbon emissions and how can we reduce them or reduce our mm -hmm. carbon footprint? Right. But obviously, there's it's not that black and white, and there's a lot of other things we need to be thinking about. Yeah, and I think the most important of them is water. If I if I if I if 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 we were going to um, guide environmental policy based on one substance, I think the substance should be water. Yeah, you found that disruptions in the hydrological cycle plays a huge role in global warming. Can you help me understand the disruptions to water? A lot of them come from. Uh, the destruction of soil through industrial agriculture and through um, draining wetlands and cutting down forests, mm -hmm. which in all cases means that water that would otherwise be soaked into the water table 
uh, and into the soil that would be sponged up by the soil. Now, you know, like say you, you clear cut a patch of forest, there's nothing to hold the soil anymore. So the water pounds down, the rain pounds down and washes the soil away instead of soaking in. So then, um, as soon as the rains are done, um, a drought begins because there's, if there's a forest or a healthy grasslands or a wetlands, then that water that has come from the sky, it's slowed down by the leaves, by the leaf litter or the, the um, layer of uh, whatever vegetative detritus is on the ground. And then it penetrates into the soil, which is kept all spongy by um, mycelial networks and by earthworms and by burrowing mammals. And so it soaks up all this water. And then uh, when the rains pass, the plants, especially trees, draw the water up into their, into their leaves and it transpires, it trans-evaporates um, into the air. Uh, and, and, and all that moisture rises and congeals into clouds and, and it rains. So the, the trees and the swamps and the grasslands extend the rainy season. So first they prevent floods and they prevent erosion and runoff. And secondly, they, they prevent drought by extending the rainy season. Um, and, and they even transport heat uh, because evaporation cools, condensation warms. So the evaporation is happening at the surface, the condensation is happening in the sky. Um, and the clouds they create reflect sunlight. Um, and, and so it, it, it modulates the local climate and to some extent the global climate uh, because this, especially over the Amazon and, and other large forests, this massive updraft of moisture, which then when it condenses into water droplets, creates a low pressure zone that pulls more moisture and more air up from the surface and eventually pulls it in from, the, from over the oceans, creating what they call in Brazil, the flying river. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And so it, it anchors the entire global circulation of fluids, basically, if you want to look at the earth as a body. Mm -hmm. and, and when that breaks down, we have all kinds of flooding and droughts and, um, the, the, and chaos in the weather patterns, which then gets blamed on greenhouse gas induced global warming. Right. But what I'm saying is that, and yeah, that could be, what I'm saying is that the main cause is the disruption of life itself because life maintains the conditions for life. Yeah, this makes me think of desertification and Alan Savory's work or his mm -hmm. methods of holistic plant grazing for for better farming operations and better and healthier cows and healthier soil. Right. Right. So there are people like Alan Savory, like Ernst Gosch, like Gabe Brown, um, these regenerative farmers and ranchers who are rebuilding the health of the organs of the living planet. Uh, especially the, the organ. So the ones you that I just mentioned, they're, they're um, regenerating soil, which is one of the key organs of Gaia. And yeah, then like, you know, wherever they've been, streams that have been dry for 30 years come back to life. You know, springs come back, birds come back, biodiversity comes back, the soil comes alive again. And, and yes, they're also sequestering carbon in the soil, but that's not fundamentally why they're doing it. And its value cannot be reduced just to that. Its value is that they are regenerating the organs of the planet. Um, through, um, yeah, like you mentioned, Alan Savory, through holistic managed grazing. I'm sure you've probably already, you know, had shows on that. I'm not going to go into it. Mm -hmm. um, and through um, organic no-till horticulture. That's important as well. Animals and plants. It's not only just the carbon sequestration, but also, you know, healthier soil, healthier cows, healthier, more nutrient-dense cows. So healthier us, better connection with our food. Um, and, and obviously getting away from CAFO operations. It's right. a win-win for every living thing. Yeah, all part of the same movement. You know, it, it, um, the personal healing, bodily healing, social healing, environmental healing, 
Um, it's all part of a, uh, uh, a metamorphosis of civilization, all part of a shift toward a story of interbeing. Now, has there been a spiritual practice or experience with plant medicine that has provided you with a sense of oneness with the natural world and given you this unique perspective? I mean, I definitely respect the plant medicines and, and my, my path hasn't um, been, they're not a main, a major part of my path. Mm -hmm. um, for me, they're more of these um, occasional medicines um, or allies, I might call them. But yeah, they, my, my, my breakthrough moments were not from the plant medicines. Um, but I do think that, that <laughs> that's one of the reasons why they're here mm -hmm. is to, is to reconnect people with the lost truths of interconnection, interbeing, um, participation, um, our inseparability and oneness with all life. How does that knowledge come back to us? I think we need help. And the plant medicines are, are an outreach of the beings that wish us to reunite with them. Yeah, and you said come back to us, which, which you're implying that you know, we were separated at some point. Can you envision some sort of rite of passage into adulthood that could tackle this problem? I mean, this is a whole, you know, whole other topic, uh, rites of passage. Uh, another thing that has been, been lost in modernity. Um, you know, it's not so easy as sending people off, you know, sending young people off to a, a week-long program or something like that. Um, rites of passage into adulthood are only effective when there's a reception for the returned young person uh, into a community that now sees them as having undergone something profound and sees them now as an adult. So if, if you're not coming from and returning to a community that has an understanding of what has happened to you, then you know you go to the program and it's amazing while you're there, but like you come back and um, you can feel almost betrayed and still not know how to navigate your life. Uh, because what good does it do if the people around you are still seeing you as how you were, not as what you want to become? Um, yeah, and then there's, there's, maybe you're also mentioning the idea that I work with sometimes that humanity as a whole is undergoing a rite of passage, an initiation ordeal into um, full membership in the tribe of all life on earth, where in which we step into our true destiny, which is not domination and conquest, but which is to join the rest of life in making the world even more alive. That's why every species is born. It's to um, help maintain and evolve life on earth. Every species has a contribution to make toward life. Humans have used their, their gifts in the opposite direction for a long time, especially the gift of, of technology, the gift of our unique kind of intelligence. And a successful initiation for our species, or at least let's say for civilization, certainly many indigenous people did and still do devote their gifts toward maintaining life. But as a whole, as a collective, as a mass civilization, this would be new to really understand why we are here as being in service to the living planet and its evolution toward being more and more and more alive and even of the whole cosmos being more and more alive, that, that, that we step into a position of service rather than of domination. That's mm -hmm. the, what I think that the initiation is meant to accomplish. And it is kind of like an initiation, you know, all kinds of um, crises are besetting us and, and we are in a situation that we do not know how to resolve. And this feeling of helplessness um, and hopelessness is part of the initiatory process. There's a moment in the initiatory process where you're like, I cannot do this. 
that, and that's a key breakdown of the old self. And this is happening on a collective level. Our understanding of who we are as a, as a species, why we're here, is dissolving. The, our visions of the future, of the technological utopian future, are dissolving. The fantasy that science was going to engineer all of our problems out of existence and make the future awesome, that's dissolving. And as a result, we don't know who we are anymore. We don't know why we're here. All the old answers do not make sense anymore. And for many people, personally, the same is true. The answers that we were born into of how to live a life, how to be a man, how to be a woman, what to do, how to do this thing, what's important, what's the formula for success, why are you here, um, what does life mean, like these, how do, you, how do you do it, how do you take care of your body, um, you know, what do you do when you get sick, how do you maintain uh, a livelihood, like, all of the received answers are working less well for our generation than for our parents' generation. And we're, we're like, it's this almost moment of vertigo. Who am I? How do I do it? This is a, a really sacred moment, collectively and individually, when this happens. It's the, I call it the space between stories. And it is the, the breakdown that creates the emptiness that allows a new story to come very special moment that we are in. When you think about this awesome future, walk me through the beautiful world that you can envision. You know, I don't want to paste together a series of cliches about peace and peace and love and community and gardens and bike paths and all that kind of stuff. Um, what I can say is that any description I could make will fall short of what's really possible for this planet and for humanity. And I will also say <clears throat> that probably all of us have been given glimpses of what the future could be, that the glimpses take the form of the most profound moments of your life where you experienced healing, forgiveness, generosity, love, intimacy, kindness, connection, um, transformation, uh, cooperation, um, things that feel almost like a miracle, either materially or socially or relationally. And not only do they feel like a miracle, they feel like a revelation of the future and they feel like a homecoming. They feel like a, that they're not just exceptions to the grim normality that we take for granted, but they are promises of what is possible. And, and when we have these experiences, they make the default world seem less tolerable and they align us to the future that has, through these experiences, reached back and called us toward it. And so I think that, you know, it's not really about me describing what the future could be, but it's about invoking your own recognition that has visited you in your life. Looking at the cosmic timeline, we've been here for a very brief time as a species. And I think it's okay that we're still trying to figure things out. You know, as long as we are doing our best and trying to do the right thing in all of our actions, that is a great place to start. And also this book will really teach you that earth is alive and every generation can aim to leave it a little better than they found it. Yeah, that would be uh... That could be, could be a takeaway from it, yeah. So a couple more questions for you before we wrap up, Charles. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, because he um, offers some kind of transmission. And I think that maybe if I could have a drink with him, um, you know, have some moments with him, that it would help attune me to what he was tuned into. So what are your daily non-negotiables, things that no matter what will always be done? If I'm traveling and things, then um, whatever practices I have sometimes have to be sacrificed in, um, you know, out of necessity, um, I guess. But what would be the necessity? Um, I guess the reason I sacrifice them is 
because it's necessary to serve life. Yeah, that's what keeps calling me. So you have the new book out, Climate, A New Story. You have a podcast, A New and Ancient Story podcast. Is there a must-listen episode that you recommend? There's a lot of good ones there. Um, you know, I would, I would say for people to just see which one kind of calls to them. Awesome. So you have online courses and events. What else do you have going on? I think this, uh, you know, this coming year, I'm going to be on something of a sabbatical. Um, not completely uh, shut down from any public engagement, but I'm doing a lot less speaking. I think I might write another book um, and just reconnect to source and stuff. So I'm, I'm not going to have as many offerings. Although I think I'm going to be doing a, um, a series on like kind of a subscription based series on, on climate. It's kind of as a companion to the book. Um, really like, I think the most, the most, the biggest impact of, that the book has on people is that it lifts them out of despair um, without um, minimizing what's happening on earth, but showing how the despair is part of the same story that generates the crisis. Um, and so I guess um, maybe by the time you air this, the uh, online series on climate will be, will be ready. And so if people are negotiating that despair in themselves or in, with people in their lives, uh, maybe that will be a, a useful resource for them. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for that new book to come out and I'm excited to dive into sacred economics at some point as well. Where else should people go if they want to learn more about you and just to keep up with what you're doing? CharlesEisenstein.org. Absolutely, man. So any parting words from our listeners or maybe parting question? Contemplate what I said about humanity and all species being here to serve the coming alive of the world, to serve life and to know that that is true of yourself as well. Your primary reason why you were put here on the planet was to contribute, is to contribute to, to life and to recognize that anytime you get in a situation, whether it's in a relationship or a job or in your life, that, that you're not devoting your gifts toward life, then you're, you're not going to feel good. Um, and just to affirm, yeah, this is why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And to hold that knowing as true, that will cause changes, positive changes to happen in your life if you hold the knowing that you are here to serve life as true. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.